6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. There's an incredible book you should be aware of by Alan Bloom who wrote it after 30 years in, in, in a university environment, in Chicago, I believe it was, University of Chicago. And Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. It was just his recollections of 30 years of uh, instructing on the college campuses, and I think he was the, probably the one that most shocked when it made the cover of the news magazines it's a few years ago. But it's a in, in, very interesting observation, because our universities have chosen to disregard the value of, of the past. The classical concept of education was to study the great minds of the past in the, on the presumption that by understanding the great thinkers and the great doers of the past, one can be better prepared for the present and the future. But there's been a style on the American universities to disparage the relevance of the great thinkers of the past, and it has the, you know, this whole idea of value relativism. If your truth is as good as my truth, why study the past? As a result, the modern uh, university product has little awareness or understanding of the relevance of the great civilizations of the past, the great uh, thinkers of the questions, all the things that most universities would hold dear. It's interesting how the, the, this attempt to make students open has really resulted in them being closed. And a very interesting, very interesting book. It's worth reading if you can lay your hands on a copy. The library, whatever. It's a, Alan Bloom, Closing American Mind. See, another view is that only that person is prepared to live who is prepared to die. It's certainly true in a number of professions. People who have reconciled themselves to that can move without fear, without constraint. And of course, we uh, always work this in whenever we do. I always, uh, 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 Hegel's famous quote, History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. Or George Santayana said a similar idea, and he that doesn't know the history is, death, is doomed to repeat it. And uh, how very true, how very true. I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, for what can man do that cometh after the king? Yes, it is, even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. A wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. See, the wise man sees death coming and acts accordingly. The fool walks in darkness and is caught unprepared. Then I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this is also vanity. There is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? So he's saying both die and both are going to be forgotten, so that's somehow another form of emptiness here. It's interesting, Solomon's fame has remained. And yet, not the way he probably might have expected. It's interesting to contrast 
David and Solomon. If you and I were writing David's report card, it would we probably give him some pretty rough grades. He was an adulterer, he was a murderer, a man of war. So we might be pretty hard on David, and yet God gives him a top report card because he repented. He said, there's a man after my own heart, God says. The only one that I can that I know of that God says that of. So here's a case where David, we might be hard on, and God extols. Solomon's the other way around. We think, boy, here's Solomon, the wisest guy that ever lived. Brought more prosperity to the nation than they'd ever enjoyed. I mean, he, we would give him high marks. It's interesting that in the New Testament, Solomon, every time he's mentioned, it's disparagingly, sort of. The, lily, the lilies of the valleys, even Solomon wasn't arrayed like them. So he's set up as a standard, but it's always a standard that something else excels. You see? Notice that. It's very interesting. And Solomon does not get a high report card from God, if for no other reason than in his later years he becomes apostate. He was told not to multiply wives. 700 wives? 300 concubines? Which are not like whores. Many many of us don't understand concubines. It's really a second-class wife kind of thing. They had certain legal rights. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, most of those were not romances. They were political alliances for various reasons. But still, it ended up turning his heart. The foreign wives that were represented in that group ended up uh, making demands that Solomon acceded to, and pretty soon you had all kinds of idols in the temple area. And he went apostate. And, and uh, there is no uh, textual record that he ever repented. He may have, but there's no record of it in the text. Therefore, Solomon says, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of the spirit. Or chasing after the wind, if you will. So he sort of is expressing a view that he hates to live and, and yet he's afraid to die. That was the expression, that was the equivalent expression from Voltaire. He said something similar to that. And I think Solomon would agree with Voltaire in that sense. Life seemed irrational to Solomon. And yet it's still better than death. Now the healthy Christian, by the way, shouldn't be hating life. No matter how difficult the circumstances become. It is true that some of the great men of the Bible wanted to die. Job expresses that in chapter 3. And it's also chapters 3 to 7, in fact. Moses expressed that in Numbers 11. Elijah expressed that in 1 Kings 19. And Jonah expressed that in chapter 4. But these are very special instances and hardly examples for us to follow. And by the way, each one of these men very quickly changed their minds. The Christian should love life seeking to get the most out of it for the glory of God. That's what's missing in this whole monologue by uh, Solomon. Peter says so in first, first Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and he's quoting from Psalm 34. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. But see, all of us, we may uh, not enjoy everything about life, and we may not be able to explain everything about life, but we are to live by promises, not by explanations. And we know that our labor is not in vain for the Lord. Remember I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We'll repeat that many times in this, in, in this review of Ecclesiastes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, from verse 18 on, he's now going to talk about the fact that you can't keep your wealth and so forth. He says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I have taken unto the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Again, he, he uh, recognizes the day going to come when he's going to die, and he's going to leave everything to his successor. And all this fruits, all the diligent work, may go to someone who may be careless or someone who's done nothing to deserve them. The Jews have an interesting proverb. They say, a shroud has no pockets. Isn't that colorful? A shroud has no pockets. In other words, you can't take it with you is the, is the thought behind that. And that sort of reminds you of the Lord's uh, warning in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, or Paul's works in 1 Timothy 6. See, money is a medium of exchange, and unless it's spent, it can do little or nothing for you. Money takes its value in its motion, in its movement. It can buy goods. It can cause things to happen. It's not a static thing. It's a, it's a velocity thing. You can't eat money, but you can use it to buy food. It won't keep you warm, but it will purchase fuel. A Wall Street Journal writer said that uh, money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. Well said. <laughs> I'm always amused by MasterCard's little slogan. I think it's well, very clever advertising. There's some things money can't buy, but for all the rest, there's MasterCard. <laughs> some are very, very clever. <laughs> but we need to remember that there's nothing wrong with wealth. We are to be stewards of that wealth. And God is the provider and the owner, and we simply have the privilege of enjoying it and using it for His glory. And one day, we're going to have to give an account of what we've done with all of His gifts. One of the things that's, uh, I know Nan and I, is one of our most repeated prayers or comments throughout the day. Every good thing comes from the Lord. Every good thing comes from the Lord. And boy, are we staggered as we begin to realize how many things, good things, we take for granted. We're going to be held accountable for that. That doesn't mean we can't enjoy things, but we need to recognize that the yard stake is going to be, are we doing it for the glory of God? Now, I always have to work this in. They always say you can't take it with you. And that's not true. They always say you can't take it with you. Yes, you can. Did you know that? Luke 16 tells you how. Luke 16 has this weird parable of this unrighteous steward. This guy's about to get fired. He realizes he's going to get fired. So he runs around and writes down his, bo his boss's receivables. He goes to everybody that owes his boss money and writes down the debts they owe. That's illegal. What's he doing, though? What he's doing, he's still the steward for a while, so he has the power to do that. So he does that so that when he is fired, he's going to have somebody that owes him a favor to go get another job. That's the story. And the Lord doesn't commend the morality of that steward. He does simply say that he's wiser than the sons of men. And what does he mean? He's using his present position to take care of his future situation. It's a weird parable because we get hit by so much, we get all hung up in the fact that he's an unrighteous steward. That's not the point that the Lord is making. See, you can't take it with you. Yes, you can. You can send it up ahead. If you're going to certain foreign countries, that if you're going to visit those foreign countries, you want to change your currency to that country before you leave, before you go there. 
And uh, that's exactly what you want to do with heaven. How do you have your your opportunities, your your wealth here set up ahead? By using it for the Lord's work. To build a credit that you can call upon. That's, that's the thought, anyway. Check out the first dozen verses of Luke 16. Uh, Luke 16 is a very important chapter because it has two main ideas. This one, the first dozen verses, take a look at it and come to your own conclusions. And uh, the second one, of course, it's also the place where we know a great deal about what happens after death. Because what follows that is the rich man and Lazarus. That's not a parable. In parables, they don't have names. The whole story of the rich man and Lazarus is a, is a reality that Jesus also provides to us. Okay, let's move on to verse 19. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Solomon's saying the guy that follows him, is he going to be a wise person? Or is he going to be some kind of loser? Yet he shall have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. It's a source of frustration to, to Solomon. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. So he's down about this whole thing. It's only bad enough that you have to leave your wealth behind. You don't know how it's going to be misused or misappropriated. It's interesting, by the way, because Solomon's son did that very thing. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. When Solomon dies, Rehoboam takes over. And instead of relieving the taxes that everybody's complaining about, he made them worse and caused a civil war. Jeroboam took half the nation away to the north. Rehoboam did exactly what Solomon was fearing here, it turns out, as you'll discover in 1 Kings 11 and following. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair. Better translate, I turned about. See, the verb is actually used of turning the physical body. It speaks here of a traveler who turns around to view the road he has just previously walked. And This is a different verb that's in verses 11 and 12. Uh, it speaks of a mental turning. This is The term actually implies a physical turning. It was to walk about and simply resign himself, that is, to despair, to the facts of life and death. Okay, let's go to the, his third thing. You can't keep it, you can't protect it. Okay, and you also can't enjoy it as, you should, as you'd like to. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he, shall he leave it for his portion. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What's distressing is the possibility that the wealth that he had labored so carefully might fall in the hands of one who never worked for it, would not prize it, and uh, would squander it. And how often that happens. We often talk about, you know, the, the second generation money. Men in a family that inherit the wealth and they didn't work for it, so they don't value it, they don't know how to deal with it. What hath a man of all his labor and of vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart is take, that taketh not rest in the night. This also is vanity. See, if all you do is think about your wealth and worry about what's going to happen to it, that alone will make your life miserable. See, if we do all the work and then we leave it to someone who doesn't care, that does seem futile, doesn't it? In verse uh, 22 there, it better translate, What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving? with which he labors under the sun, is the way the NIV deals with that verse. But anyway, at this point, you'd say, gee, uh, Solomon appears very pessimistic. Isn't that the flavor you get? He doesn't remain that way very long. In a step of faith, we're going to come to the third stage of his experiment, and that's in verse 24, where he says, 
There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. Wow. Solomon saying, enjoy life while you can. This is the first of six conclusions that Solomon will, will deal with in the book of Ecclesiastes. And each one of these will emphasize the importance of accepting God's gift and enjoying it in God's will. He's not advocating, don't, mis, don't misunderstand him, he's not advocating eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not what he's saying. Some of the commentators I've consulted are very superficial in their perceptions here. The one that I found the most useful is uh, Warren Wearsby. He really has a grasp of the book, I believe. Eat, drink, be merry, and tomorrow we die is a philosophy of fatalism, not of faith. Rather, Solomon is saying, thank God for what we do have and enjoy it to the glory of God. Paul gave his approval of that attitude when he exhorted us to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. First Timothy 6, verse 17. There's nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink, that he should uh, make his soul enjoy good in his labor. And this also I heard that it was from the hand of God. From the hand of God. The will of God is that man should get his pleasure from eating, drinking, and working. And so it appears to Solomon, of course, that God's providence, uh, in his providence, is the highest that man can enjoy. And he recommends taking life where you find it. Probably the, the analogous watchword would be carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize it for what it is, for the opportunities it has to live the life to God's glory. See, God, Solomon makes it clear that not only the blessings come from God, but the enjoyment of the blessings is God's gift to us. That's a profound issue there. Not just the blessings, but the capacity to enjoy the blessings is God's gift to us. Solomon considered evil if a person had all the blessings of life from God, but could not enjoy them. And he's going to develop that in chapter 6. You can begin to see why Jewish people typically read this book, uh, Ecclesiastes, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Because Feast of Tabernacles is a time of thanksgiving and rejoicing for God's abundant provision of their needs. And that's really uh, Solomon's emphasis here. That's often missed by the superficial reader. And we get to verse 25. For who can eat and who else can hasten hereunto more than I? Who can prove this by experience more than Solomon? The best way to probably read this in context is the, which is with the Greek version, apart from him, that is, uh, uh, apart from God. The translation of verse 25 is a little awkward in the King James. The New American Standard does it better. It says, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, that is, without God? It's clumsy the way it comes out in the King James. Sorry, to remind you, the farmer that prayed at his table, thanks for food and for good digestion. So you thank not only for the food, but the ability to Enjoy it. Verse 26, For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of the Spirit. See, it's important that we should seek to please the Lord and trust Him with every, every need that we have. And God wants to give us wisdom. Remember what James promised, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask, and so forth. God wants to give us wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And these three gifts enable us to appreciate God's blessing and take pleasure in them. I guess another way to try to summarize this chapter, it's not enough that we possess things. We must also possess the kind of character that enables us to use these things wisely and to enjoy them properly. 
And not so with a sinner. Now, the word sinner in the Hebrew court, the Hebrew term actually means to fall or short or to miss the mark. And that person can heap up all kinds of riches and never truly enjoy them because he has left God out of his life. That's the point. In fact, his riches then may eventually be going to the righteous. That's not always the case, but God does make it happen that the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just, in Proverbs 13, Solomon says. That happened a lot in the Scripture. You may recall it in the Exodus of Egypt. The Israelites spoiled their Egyptian masters in Exodus 3 and 12 and so on. Throughout the Jewish history, their armies took great spoil in their many conquests. And in fact, much of the wealth that went into the temple came from David's military exploits. And much of the wealth of Solomon really came from that start, if you will. And again, we have this term here, the vexation of the spirit, this meaningless chasing after the wind. Apart from God, there can be no true enjoyment of blessings or enrichment of life. And it's good to have the things that money can buy, provided that you, don't, that you don't lose those things that money can't buy. So that completes, this whole thing completes the first section of Ecclesiastes. Solomon has presented four arguments that seem to prove that life is not worth living, but it's tentative, be careful. The monotony of life and the vanity of wisdom in chapter 1, the futility of wealth and the certainty of death in chapter 2. And this argument is valid if you're looking at life under the sun. That is only from a human point of view. But when you bring God into the picture, it all changes. And uh, you, I want you to notice that God is not mentioned up until verse 23. Life and death, wisdom and wealth are all in His hands. And He wants us to enjoy those things and please His heart. If we rejoice in the gifts and forget the giver, we are ungrateful idolaters. Now, in the next eight chapters, Solomon is going to consider each of these arguments and refute them. And refute them. At the end of each of his arguments, he's going to say the equivalent of enjoy life and be thankful to God. That's why I like Warren Wiersbe summarizes his commentary on this book by saying, be satisfied. So in these discussions, Solomon is going to face honestly the trials and injustice of life and, uh, and things that make us cry out, why, Lord? But I want you to understand that Solomon is not a shallow optimist. We're not talking Pollyanna here. He's not wearing rose-tinted glasses. But he is also not a skeptical pessimist wearing blinders. You can discover he takes a very, very balanced view of life and death and helps us to look at both from God's perspective. That may come as a surprise. It'll come as a surprise to many people who've superficially read this book, but he does. I love what Chuck Colson says, Life is not like a book. Life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time, and theology must be lived in the midst of that mess. And Solomon is going to provide us with that theology. And uh, as again, as Warren Wiersbe emphasizes, it's up to us to live it and to be satisfied. Okay, so concludes our exploration of the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to go a chapter at a time. We're going to finish the 12 chapters in eight sessions, so we'll be going a little bit faster. I want you to be sensitive to the fact that we're going to see six conclusions by Solomon, and each one of those is God-centered, even though he comes at it strictly from the point of view of man's wisdom. Very interesting premise upon which to come to that conclusion. Let's stand for a, word, a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you. We come before you this night, Father, with thanksgiving in our hearts. Oh, Father, forgive us for the many ways that we fail to be grateful enough for all the things you do for us, how we 
fret and fuss over the problems that are in front of us and how often we just overlook the abundance that we enjoy. Both the blessings and also our capacity to enjoy them all come from you, Father. And we come before your throne, Father, asking forgiveness for our sins of ingratitude and our sins of presumption. For, Father, we do realize that every good thing comes from you and how abundant you are, Father. Help us, Father, to be ever more sensitive to your heart, Father, ever more aware of how gracious and how merciful you are and continue to be with each of us. We thank you, Father, for your word. But above all, Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you've drawn us to, into an awareness of the extremes that you've gone to that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We thank you, Father, for this difficult book. We thank you, Father, for its message that you would have us glean. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to become better stewards of the resources you've given us, not just of wealth, but of opportunity. Help us to revise our priorities, Father, as you would have them. That in all these things we might be more pleasing in your sight, Father. That our actions, our thoughts, our witness, the fruits of our labor might bring glory to you, Father. We ask you to take our lives and show yourself strong. Use each of us in this room as an opportunity to magnify your name, Father as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.